0: Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference.
1: Welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social, and political challenges facing our society, and look at the ways in which research, policy, and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts, I'm Daniel Ridge, I'm Helen Bede, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. In this episode, we will be discussing the ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed inequalities in the UK food system. In March 2020, when the UK went into lockdown, the food supply chain was severely disrupted. Not only did consumers begin stockpiling and donating less food to food banks, but the international food chain was hampered by export restrictions. These, among other factors, disproportionately affected low-income households and exposed deep inequalities in the UK food system. Here to talk
2: about this, we have Bob Doherty. I'm Bob Doherty, and I'm an academic based at the University of York. And My research area is very much looking at pro-social market mechanisms within the food system, so I research social enterprises and mechanisms that reduce poverty and inequality in the food system. And Madeline Power.
0: Hi, I'm Maddie Power. I'm a research fellow at the University of York in the Department of Health Sciences, and I look at poverty and food poverty and use of food banks, and I often use participatory processes like co-production to do so.
1: In early April 2020, along with co-authors Katie Pibus and Kate Pickett, Bob and Madeline co-authored the peer review article, How COVID-19 Has Exposed Inequalities in the UK Food System. The Case of UK Food and Poverty, published in the Emerald Open Research Gateway, Sustainable Food Systems. In it, they outline how the current pandemic and associated lockdown have revealed fundamental issues surrounding food insecurity, particularly as it affects low-income households. So in your article, you explain that even before the pandemic and lockdown, inequalities in access to food in the UK already existed due to austerity policies beginning in 2010. To begin with, can you explain prior to the pandemic the implications of these policies on the lives of lower-income individuals and families and the role that food banks played in this context?
0: So since 2010, we have seen a very sharp rise in the use of food banks. And before 2010, we didn't really have food banks in the UK. Um, They weren't very very well known. And we saw a very sharp increase in the number of people using food banks. And this seems to have been quite closely tied to... A series of policies that were rolled out since 2010 around welfare, so things like the benefit cap, particularly now the five-week wait for Universal Credit. So, even before the pandemic, actually food insecurity was was increasing sharply in the UK, and food banks were a key response to this increase in food insecurity.
2: And also, if you look at from 2018 to 2019, the Trussell Trust actually gave out 1.6 million food parcels. Now, if you compare that to 2010, that's a 26-fold increase in the number of emergency food parcels that were given out by the Trussell Trust. And bearing in mind the Trussell Trust don't represent the whole of the food banking system, that really does illustrate exactly what Maddy was saying about the sharp increase in the need and the demand for for, uh, food aid in the United Kingdom.
1: Right. So the Trussell Fund, that's an NGO and that has over 1,200 food bank centers. Is that correct? And then you also have a system with independent food banks.
2: Yeah. So you've got the Trussell Trust, which is a charity. And then you also have Fair Share, which is another charity as well. Those are two very large organizations working in the the food aid uh, provision. And then you have a raft of about 800 uh, independent food banks up and down the United Kingdom.
1: So when the pandemic began and the lockdown began in March, we've now been in that for several months now. How did these food banks respond to it?
2: Well, I think what was interesting was if you cast your mind back to March, uh, what you had in the United Kingdom, which didn't necessarily happen in all other uh, European uh, countries, you had this uh, manifestation of uh, panic buying and stockpiling by uh, individual households, which meant you had these media images and you would have seen them if you walked into supermarkets, uh, lots of empty shelves. And I even, for my own experience, I remember going into a supermarket and somebody's shopping trolley was just completely full, piled up with just breakfast cereals. So people were obviously Um, hoarding and stockpiling and there was no at the time there was no quarter so the supermarkets hadn't set a a limit on the amount of uh, each individual item that people could uh, purchase and that's a real problem particularly for independent uh, food banks who rely on donations within supermarkets so people when they're in a supermarket putting uh you know food that they may they may deem um you know not necessarily they need though they want to donate it they put it in a basket in the supermarket and that will go to the local food bank secondly um some food banks they'll receive donations directly from supporters, and they'll use that donation money that to go into a, a supermarket and buy bulk. So they might buy, you know, eighty packets of pasta or, or, or large numbers of, of tin tomatoes or whatever things that make up a, a food bank parcel. But if the shelves are empty, and particularly uh, what we what you did find was that those were some of the food items that were st- that people were stockpiling that creates a real problem of supply for that uh, segment of the food banking system. And, and you could see it, it, uh, that combined with a lack of volunteers because people were worried and volunteers in the food banking sector are not exclusively elderly, but are dominated by elderly people. You had a real breakdown in the independent food banking system, which kind of demonstrated its fragility, really. Uh, in 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 the light of the of the pandemic
1: yeah so uh, you know looking at the food banks you had mentioned bob that people were stockpiling and so have now that it's been several months that we've gotten used to the pandemic and the initial crisis crisis is over have people stopped stockpiling has the food supply chain evened out
2: yeah i think what you find and if you talk to supermarket retailers uh, there are still some stock outs particularly of you know some goods but what you what you're finding is the the you don't have the kind of image of these empty shelves uh, anymore and what some supermarkets have done is they've just reduced the number of stock lines in store and so they they you know certain products will occupy a bigger space just to illustrate uh, or to or to kind of you know Provide the the image or the uh, you know demonstrate to um, consumers and the public that the you know the the shelves are not empty anymore. But you will notice that still certain items, uh, because of increases in demand, really uh, are still in short in shorter supply than than others. And you are getting still stockouts of, of certain product types, and you can see that in the data because what what you found in the the with people being at home more is that people's purchasing has changed and so you you've got an increase in demand of certain items and certain companies certain products I even had record sales in the months of April and May uh, because of people uh, in lockdown and, and more home cooking more more food consumed in the home
1: Right, so that was an, another question I wanted to ask: is that with the closure of restaurants, how has that affected the food supply chain and, and food donations to charitable organizations?
2: Well, I'm sure uh, Maddie can build on that. But what 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 you found is is the obviously the food service sector, the hospitality, completely fell off the cliff. And what what happened was a real quick kind of move by different food providers to try and adapt to that situation. So what we've seen is quite uh, an emergence of uh, direct supply from suppliers of food, from farmers or from those those wholesalers and, and distributors that used to supply food service, actually starting to supply direct to consumer, direct to customer, uh, but also uh, starting to develop new relationships with retailers but also, you've seen the, the emergence of some quite interesting alliances between companies like Nando's and Leon Restaurants and charities in places like London, who have been working together in partnership to actually get food to vulnerable groups. So you have seen some real uh, social innovation in the in the food sector, particularly from food service to try and you know circumvent the kind of closure of that of that sector and also what happened in food retail was that there's an increased demand for staff and so you did have some redeployment re of staff from and workers from the hospitality sector into food retail and and the co-op uh, in Manchester was one of the kind of initial movers in that in that space because they had a big recruitment drive to recruit uh, staff from hospitality into their into their retail stores that became very, very busy.
1: So the food was successfully diverted from restaurants into being able to be consumed, but then also into these food banks as well.
2: I wouldn't say everybody was successful. I mean, if you look at uh, dairy farmers, they've really struggled. Milk's been a real problem because obviously a lot of milk is consumed in food service if you think of the number of coffee bars. So actually a lot of dairy farmers have have, have had to reduce yields uh, actually, cut back on inputs to actually reduce reduce your yields because they they didn't have a market for their for their liquid milk. Uh, different if you were supplying maybe a cheese manufacturer or a butter manufacturer, but if you were providing liquid milk for food service, there was kind of a real problem in that particular area uh, in terms of the food system.
1: So, Maddie, has there been an uptake now with donations to food banks, and are people having more access to food these lower income families?
0: To some extent, although the food banks are still very aligned on these more centralised systems. So fair share played a really big role in the distribution of food from um, food suppliers to food banks. But there's been lots and lots of teething issues around this. Um, Partly fair share actually weren't really set up in all parts of, of the UK and certainly in parts of Wales, they initially didn't have any bases and couldn't supply the food banks. And there was also a sort of cost for food banks. I so think food banks had to pay fair share to get food. So even though the theory was perhaps a good one of a centralised system of food supply and linking up um, wholesalers who might not now have a market with food banks who have increased demand, on the ground, it was very difficult. Um, and there was lots of food banks who didn't get the food they needed or got food that was past its sell-by date and mouldy or they were required to pay for the food that they, they were being given. They didn't have any money to do that.
1: So where are we now, a few months into this pandemic, in terms of food banks, donations, and people being able to to access food in food banks?
0: So it's now much better than it was. I mean, I think with everything in lockdown, there was an initial period of sort of shock and surprise, and no one was ready for it. And certainly with food banks, they weren't ready, ready for it at all. And the, the initial month or so, or two months, was chaotic and people didn't have the food they needed and the supply systems weren't set up, now they are set up. And whether it's a kind of more centralised level with fair share distributing food to food banks or whether actually a lot of it is within local authorities who have coordinated food provision, either through a food bank or through their hubs. So it's now much more established and the data isn't clear yet, but we're likely to see an increase in food donations direct to food banks as they would have had before the, the crisis. And they've also seen a a significant uptick in financial donations since the start of COVID. So that can now be used to buy food in supermarkets as they would have done. So there's now a steadying of it, but they're expecting increased demand even further as the furlough payments end, as unemployment increases. So whether or not they'll be able to keep up with that demand is is unclear.
1: When you're doing your research and pulling your data, where are you getting your data from and how are you able to share it with others?
2: I think the data on the food supply chains, if I could start there, um, looking at you know percentage of uh, food that's imported and then breaking it down by a product type, that that requires the knowledge of uh, trade statistics and how to analyze those trade statistics. And that data is ready, readily available on the Office of National Statistics. There might be a little bit of a time lag with it, but you can certainly access it and and, and number crunch it which is what we do uh, at the University of York and and in the I Know Food program uh, which me and Maddie are a part of and then also in terms of other data like market data so we were able to track the trends in terms of how people's consumer habits were changing uh you can do that by looking at the cantor world panel data uh, which shows you how you know people's consumption habits changed over the pandemic and so really what we did it what we and maddie will talk about uh, access to food banking data as well is what you tend to do is use a mixed methods approach you 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 gather data from different sources and you and you 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 pull that together to make a an article that illuminates some of the vulnerabilities and the fragilities that that are going on. Remember, this was a point in time. So this was something that we were having to collect data quickly uh, in in the weeks where we were writing the article. And I think the other benefit of an article of this type as well is the fact that we we were very pleased that it was open access, because it meant that not only academics could access it, but also practitioners could access the article as well. And what we did find was we received emails from a number of food bank leaders who said, thank you very much. We we don't normally get access to academic articles. We were really pleased, and it's helped us to inform our strategy in the next few months. So for us, that was really, really pleasing. And and Maddy will have her own insights on that as well. So for you, Maddie,
1: working with food banks, having the article open access, did it give access to people that you wouldn't have expected or to practitioners, people out there in the field?
0: Yes, absolutely. And that was something that we were very keen on when we were writing the article. That it was accessible and available to a broad sector. And so was, as Bob says, we got emails from some food banks, which I think we, he and I were both quite pleased about saying it made them... We think about their own practices in the light of the arguments that we would made, because for food banks, a lot of them are just working kind of hand to mouth, really. They're just dealing with the day to day and they don't get to reflect on that. So I'm pleased. And I think I don't want to speak for Bob. but I think we're both pleased that the article had a role in encouraging that reflection.
1: If this is protracted and there is a second wave, how will that continue to affect food banks, food donations and the the supply chain?
0: Well, on the supply chain side, I think Bob would be a much better place than me. But I would imagine in the way that has happened with food banks is that they'll actually now be able to adapt better. So certainly with food banks, if we were to see lockdown again, there will be a greater ability to adapt to that new circumstance because they've adapted in the past. Um, the problem now is that so many people are experiencing food insecurity that demand is very high and is likely to increase. So it's just continuing to meet that very high demand when they're not really set up. Food banks are only ever set up to be a temporary service and they're now becoming really part of the welfare state and they're not really able to do that.
1: Right. So looking at the long term, have we permanently affected the way food bank structures work because of the pandemic?
0: Possibly. And I think there's some concern within the food bank sector, that could be the case. So the sort of broader framework for this, and I suppose Bob and I are both academics, so we do look at things in a kind of more theoretical way and and the long-term implications of all of these events is that lots of food banks and lots of those working in relation to food banks were quite resistant to food banks becoming permanent, to them becoming part of the infrastructure of how welfare is given in the UK, how support is given. And what we've probably seen is that in the need for them to establish themselves to meet sharply increased demand over this period. They have set up links um, with centralised supply chains. They have set up links with local authority and the welfare system at a local level, which means they're becoming further institutionalised. So they're further part of a system and it's, it's very difficult to undo that system. Um, and I suppose what really happened has happened is that they become further entrenched which might be good in some respects that people need that support. But actually, before this point, there was huge concern that that would happen. And I think there's lots of lots of people would would not like that to be the case.
1: Right. There seems to be a a very strong moral dimension to this of um, the responsibility of the government versus the private sector. And food banks seem to play a precarious role between the public and the private partnership. Um, Do you think this is viable in the long run?
0: I would say it's not, just from the perspective that we know from a wealth of research that only a minority of people who experience food insecurity, so experience difficulties around accessing food because of money, access food banks. So food banks aren't a solution to food poverty. They don't address food poverty. So it's very problematic if we're entrenching food banks as a supposed solution to food poverty, they're not going to solve it. Um, and we need to actually be looking at other solutions if we really want to address growing food insecurity.
1: Right. So how has COVID-19 specifically exposed inequalities in the UK food system?
2: I think that going back to what Maddie was saying, the reason why food banks aren't a permanent solution is because a lot of people actually have a stigma about going to food banks. They're embarrassed to go to food banks and they work out uh, lots of other different mechanisms uh, with networks, with families, uh, to actually, and, and, and adults will go without go without food themselves to feed their to feed their children. So, in in a way, the number of food banks and the number of parcels that food banks provide is only one indicator it's not the whole story there's a hidden story there of of food insecurity and food poverty in the UK and i think what the what covid-19 did was just expose that fragility even further and obviously that was accentuated by initial stockpiling and and being uh, food banks not not being able to get their normal supply also uh, there is a, uh, to get a food bank parcel, there's a referral system. So you have to go through a referral system. And because if you look at, if you look ahead, if we see a rise in unemployment, uh, which is which is forecasted and predicted? Will the referral system also be able to keep up with the demand of people wanting to access a voucher to use a, to use a food bank? And I think the other important element of this is that food banks, in the main, and Maddy might might say this is changing, but in the main, they offer a food parcel that is mainly made up of processed food. It's made up of tinned goods. It's made up of uh, dried produce. And there's very little fresh produce in that food parcel. And I think that's a problem for for the health of the nation as well. Because if we you know, are making that inequality even worse by actually providing a diet that's undernutritious, that adds to people's issues in terms of lower immune system, which is obviously proven to be... You know a difficulty if, if you have the virus then that's just creating a two-tier food system and, and and i'm sure if you speak to policymakers and you speak to industry the last thing we need in the united kingdom is a two-tier food system a food system for the poor and a food system for the rich and i think that's the, for me that is the, the real real concern is that you just reinforce those inequalities even further
1: Right. You also mentioned in your article that people from different ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, they're not having access either to the types of foods they would normally eat. Is there anything you could say more about that?
0: Yeah. So that really came out from some work that we did in Bradford now a few years ago, um, where we were looking at... So Bradford is a city in the north of England, and it's very ethnically diverse. It's got a very large Pakistani Muslim population. And we did some work in the food banks in Bradford, um, about how they were giving food and who was receiving the food. And we found that they didn't have many Pakistani Muslim people going to the food banks, even though in that population there's quite high deprivation. And the food that they were giving out wasn't culturally appropriate. It'd be a very standard pass of food. And, and it wouldn't be appropriate to people's needs in terms of maybe halal food. Um, and so that's increasingly a concern as COVID goes on because we're seeing um, that BAME populations are... Experiencing a very high burden of of COVID, and of the inequality that comes from broadly economically associated with COVID, so there's a threat, there's a danger they'll be excluded from the services they might need to access because food banks can't provide and don't provide culturally appropriate food.
1: So, is there a way to reach them and to get them the food that they need?
0: Food banks really should be thinking more carefully, and some are absolutely many are about the cultural needs of the people using the food banks. Lots of food banks are provided by Christian churches who can be white and there can be, perhaps in the midst of everything else going on, that, that doesn't seem to be a concern. And because maybe they don't have many ethnic minority people using their food bank, they think it isn't a concern. So there's a, a role for food banks to play in making themselves more inclusive. And there's also probably the acknowledgement that maybe some communities might not want to go to the food bank. So it's about how we can make that food available to them if they don't want to come to the site of the food bank itself
1: well clearly the the country is going through an economic crisis because of the the lockdown and the pandemic and that is there is there more of an acceptance now possibly of people going to food banks because we know that there is this crisis that more people are having to deal with the situation
0: i i would say there's probably more of an acceptance of people getting food charity in some form so Food banks are one example of people getting food charity. They might also get a food parcel from a local charity that works with families, so that used to run a community centre and supported families who are now distributing food parcels. And lots of schools are distributing food parcels rather than giving food vouchers. So there's probably a normalisation of food charity and accessing food charity in some form. I think food banks themselves and going to food banks still has a stigma, a strong stigma attached to it. And it's possible that stigma might have been enhanced because actually now if someone's going to a food bank, it's a very transactional experience. So that It's not a kind of holistic experience. They don't get care, they don't get conversation, they don't get advice because people can't do that within the confines of social distancing. So it becomes very transactional. And because of that, it might be even more stigmatising than it used to be.
1: Bob, on April 30th of 2020, you and Professor Fiona Smith gave oral testimony to the House of Commons uh, International Trade Committee on UK Food System as it responded to the COVID-19. Can you tell us about the purpose of the testimony and what you discussed?
2: Yeah, that's a very good uh, question. It was the International Trade Select Committee who were having an inquiry on the impact of COVID-19. On the UK food system so it was looking very much at the problem from an international perspective and we were asked to provide oral evidence along with two other industry representatives one was Ian Wright from the Food and Drinks Federation and a representative from the British Retail uh, Consortium and we all agreed actually on certain key points one that um, during the pandemic, and, and one of the reasons why we were quickly able to kind of refill those shelves that were, were that that were empty in the early stages was that I don't know whether you were aware, but actually in the UK, forty-six percent of our food is imported from other uh, nation states, and thirty percent of the food actually comes from the European Union. And that's a mixture of fresh produce. So we import a a large amount of our fruit and vegetables from the European Union, particularly from the Netherlands, Italy, and Spain. Plus, we import quite a lot of our ambient goods. Uh, So tin tomatoes, pasta, baby milk, all sorts of different goods from the European Union. Now, what the single market provides is a very frictionless movement of goods. And one of the things that really held up in, in the COVID-19 pandemic, and it still is holding up today, is the actually the just-in-time supply chains from the European Union and that frictionless movement of goods really worked very, very well. And what I was trying to emphasize in that trade committee was the that's one of the reasons why we were able to maintain supply in the grocery retail sector in the COVID-19 pandemic, and it was because of the speed and the and the fact that goods come very quickly from Calais to Dover every day, and what supermarkets have got used to over the past uh, 15 years is very much a just-in-time supply chain to make them more efficient. And so they'll order today before 12 noon from their suppliers of fresh produce or ambient goods in Europe, and they'll get the d- d- delivery tomorrow. So it's called day one for day two. And so, but if you then start to introduce delays. So one of the concerns that people do have is uh, if we were to enter a second wave of the pandemic at the same time as we have Brexit, it's very, very important the UK has a good trade deal that maintains that frictionless movement of goods across borders from Spain, from Italy, from the Netherlands to maintain our supplies. Because if you think of fresh produce, you can't really stockpile those items they're perishable. That's the interesting thing about the food system. If you compare it to something like uh, car, car components or electrical components, you know, the, the, the produce is perishable. And so you, we've, got to be, we've got to understand that when we're entering into these big geopolitical changes uh, within the United Kingdom.
1: So has the just-in-time supply chain, has that recovered since the initial shock of the lockdown?
2: yes i think in most cases uh it has recovered and it's proven quite quite resilient but it could have been different so food has managed to keep going um keep moving from the european union to the united kingdom and that's been a success really but if you think of, say, fresh vegetables, for example, uh, we we get thirty six percent of our fresh vegetables from the European Union. They mainly come from southern Spain. Actually, southern Spain had a very low incidence of COVID nineteen outbreak, and it could have been different. Um, so, in those in those farms and in those packing plants for fresh vegetables, there was a very low number of of uh, COVID nineteen cases in southern Spain. So actually, that you could argue was a little bit of luck and fortune in some of our supply chains being continuing to supply the UK. Also, because there was some labor loss, so people did get sick, and there was a lower number of lorry drivers available. What, The UK government did, it did reduce some of the, it did introduce some flexibility into the system. It took away the cap on the number of miles travelled and also the number of hours that lorry drivers were restricted in terms of uh, driving. So it meant that with a combination of measures and the free movement of goods across the European Union for certain supply chains, they were able to continue effectively.
1: So looking forward at the um, the way that the UK consumes food, gets it from abroad, is there a push to make the UK more independent in its own food production?
2: It's a debate. People are obviously, you know, you would have heard in the media discussions about self-sufficiency, uh, reshoring of food supply. But the UK has always existed within a global food system. Even if you think back to the late 1980s, we were still importing 34, 35% of our food. Uh, I take one good example. Bananas, for example, is Britain's favorite fruit. And obviously, you can't grow that in the United Kingdom. It's a crop that's a tropical uh, crop. It grows in West Africa and Caribbean and Central America. And so, it's more nuanced than than just thinking of self-sufficiency. However, there are certain crops, particularly British seasonal vegetables and, and fruit, that you that, that people could argue could be grown in that more 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 could be grown in the United Kingdom. But that also relies on other factors. It's more complex than just um, you know s- than just saying you can turn the tap on because it needs investment, it needs land, it needs labour. Um, also, you know, we have an elderly. Aging farming population—you um, know, lower, lower number of people go, young people going into farming. So you, you, you—it's not as st- straightforward as maybe some free market economists would think. You, the, there's a, there's a lot of uh, complexity and in infrastructure, and questions of land use that would have to be considered before you can make those accurate calculations to whether the UK could be more self-sufficient.
1: In recommendations that you might make to the UK government about what they could do about food insecurity and the food supply chain, uh, what would those be?
2: In terms of food supply chains, my, my strong recommendation is people who are negotiating the trade deal with the European Union have a full understanding of the complexity and the nuances of the food system and the food supply chain. It's not the same as electrical components or or car parts, it's perishable. We source food from, you know, thousands of different producers. Uh, 14 to to 15% of our food also comes from uh, less developed countries. And so in any trade deal, in any trade negotiations, that needs to be understood. We really need to be able to pinpoint exactly where our food is coming from by doing good trade analysis. And we need to consider that when we're, when we're negotiating trade deals because you know, our food system really relies on the frictionless movement of goods uh, across borders to keep uh, the consumer in the UK satisfied across the
1: 12-month period. Right. And then looking now at inequality, there's sort of a trickle down effect, right? So we have food coming in from out of the country, and then we have it getting into food banks. So Maddie, could you say something more about that, about the food banks and the way that they they may operate in terms of this this larger food chain?
0: In terms of food banks, I suppose one thing that's really important to bear in mind with them is that they're so closely tied to poverty more generally. So, So it's good if they've got the food supply that they need That's coming from various sources and that might now be increasingly centralized but it also might be them buying food in supermarkets and as long as that food is there in the supermarkets they will be able to buy that food they don't really need a diversity of food because the parcel that they give out to people is so limited it's very restricted parcel of food and it only has dry food in it so in some ways in terms of any time limit or kind of temporal implications of when that food is coming into the supermarkets that wouldn't really have any bearing for them Going forward with food banks, I just think there's a great concern from both individual food banks on the ground as well as the governance organisations, so that'd be the Trust of Trust and the Independent Food Aid Network, about increased demand and people not getting the support that they need from the welfare state. So there are lots of joint calls at the moment out from various organisations for the government to make certain amends to the welfare state. So that's things like the benefit cap, or reducing the five-week wait for universal credit, which means that people have the income they need so that they themselves can go to the supermarket and buy the food that Bob is talking about.
1: Right, so that would change the question of stigma attached to a food bank, so that it would give more liberty to the individual to be able to go to a grocery store and pick out their own food.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, I think what Muddy was saying there was the you know notion of cash first is best, particularly when the system broke down like it did in the at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic was that to reduce that stigma and for people not to have to wait and find other mechanisms of providing food for their families that actually what the Scottish government did was they had a cash first approach so they put more money into people's universal credit and that was very very welcome it meant People could do exactly what you were referring to there, Daniel, is to actually go into the supermarket themselves and feel empowered to to buy the food they they wanted. And I think those are some lessons. What we what we really really have to be careful about is is actually making food banking the norm in the United Kingdom. We're an advanced capitalist nation. To think that you know, a good percentage of our population actually relies on food charity is something worth reflecting upon for everybody? Do we really want a society that that relies on a, on a two-tier food system?
1: Maddie, is there anything you'd like to add to that?
0: Yeah, just a second. Everything that Bob says that I think in some ways, if you look at what's happened over the past few months from a policy perspective, it's quite interesting to focus on the difference between the devolved nations. So Scotland took quite a different approach to England. So while there were these, um, these uh, UK-level changes to the welfare system like the extra £20 a week in universal credit, what Scotland did is it put much more money initially into local hardship funds. And the idea would be that before someone went to a food bank, they would go to a local hardship fund that might be administered by a local authority and then get cash rather than have to go and get food. And if that, is, if that, that system is set up, it means that the problems that we see in the food system don't need to affect somebody whose food insecurity is only because of low income and poverty.
1: So specifically in the UK, with their response to COVID-19, what have they gotten right and what have they gotten wrong in the last few months?
0: The furlough scheme clearly prevented the destitution, or at least unemployment and poverty, of millions and millions of people. Um, And so the furlough scheme for for people who who are self-employed as well as employees has been really crucial. They made some changes to the welfare state to universal credit quite early on, which are important, like increasing the value of universal credit. Um, And then there were additional um, elements like mortgage holidays. So they've been really important. I would say for me, what they've got wrong is that they didn't go the whole hog, really. They they kept a five-week wait for universal credit. So when you first sign on, you've got a wait of at least five weeks until you get your first payment. And if you've got no money coming into the household in that problem, you're very likely to have to go to a food bank. So they didn't change that. They also kept the benefit cap, which means that if you're in a slightly larger family, your benefits would still be limited. So you might not gain that extra £20 a week in universal credit because you're being hit by the benefit cap. So there were some things they did really well, but they could have done more and they could have gone further.
1: Bob, what do you think?
2: Yeah, also to, also to add to what Maddy said, there was a couple of other things uh, which are Kind of key, uh, also was obviously there was a big debate around free school meals during the summer holidays. Obviously, the government initially decided not to provide uh, free school meals during this summer holiday, uh, but it and then that needed the intervention of uh, of a footballer called Marcus Rashford, who who it's interesting how football has become politically active during the the past few months and uh, it led to a government U-turn. So it was the right decision in the end, but it was clear to most people that that would have been the good thing and the moral thing to do in the initial, in the initial decision-making. I think the other thing about the food supply chain, DEFRA has worked very, very closely with the, with the grocery industry and the supermarkets, and they did make some of these decisions which, which actually helped in terms of keeping you know supply chains going with taking some of the restrictions off the of the miles traveled in terms of logistics and also the number of hours that lorry drivers can drive just to keep food on the shelves so there were some good things but obviously some some areas for improvement
1: well thank you so much for joining us today i think we had a really good conversation It's covered a lot of territory
0: yeah thank you
2: that's good and thanks
1: If you're interested in learning more about Bob Doherty and Madeline Power's work on how COVID-19 has exposed inequalities in the UK food system, you can find a link to their open access article in the show notes. Next week, Helen will be speaking with Associate Professor Johnny Jones of the Mississippi Valley State University about historically black universities in the United States. Join us then and thank you for listening.